in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. That's President Dwight D. Eisenhower, a five-star general and a Republican, in 1961. We're listening to his farewell address and the first ever reported use of that phrase, military-industrial complex. That's the relationship between the military and the people who make the military's stuff. Defense contractors, arms manufacturers, aerospace companies. So let's jump to the future. Here is today's president, Donald Trump, making an important personnel announcement. Mark Esper, who is a highly respected gentleman with a great career, West Point, Harvard, uh, a tremendous talent, who's just named acting secretary of defense. I think he'll do very well. Yes, Esper has a very long career, but one bit of Esper's career President Trump didn't mention his years of experience as the most powerful arms lobbyist in America. Now, Esper is the CEO of the biggest employer in the world, the United States military, and controls a $700 billion budget, a good chunk of which goes to Esper's old colleagues in the defense industry. The lobbyists that reported, the team that reported to me, I oversaw all their activities across all services, MDA, non-defense activities. So everything that that Raytheon lobbied on, basically. Yes, man. That was one of my responsibilities out of several. So how did he get there? And what does it mean? Who is Secretary of Defense Mark Esper? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the people who have it. In early January, the United States military killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, an action that many fear could spark a very serious conflict. Foreign Policy magazine spoke with a senior Defense Department official who said, quote, the usual approval process, the decision-making process, did not occur. That Secretary Esper, just a few months into his tenure, held meetings without important Pentagon leaders, working in a silo with President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Let me reiterate that the United States is not seeking a war with Iran, but we are prepared to finish one. His answer for what needs to happen in Iran? Iran needs to become a normal country. He said the same about China in an interview with the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I just think China is heading in the wrong direction. And so what we've been saying is we need to compete with them and we need to try and pull them back, back into the international world order, the liberal world order that we established in the wake of World War II, and uh, try and get them on that path because we don't want a conflict with China. Uh, What we want to do is we want to see them develop into a normal country. And that's one of the things we're trying to do these days from our perspective is to make sure we're ready for the worst, but hope for the best and work for the best. And I do want to talk about what it means that Esper is in charge of the department for these high-level discussions. But first, let's go a bit into the world he comes from. Since I was a kid, I've always been obsessed with the military-industrial complex. I was a weird kid. But anyway, the idea that there's an industry that would directly benefit from more war has always fascinated me. Why does this exist, and how did it come about? Kate Brannon is the editorial director of Just Security, which analyzes national security policy. 
She knows the defense world very well. The United States derives a lot of its power from its economy, but it also derives a lot of its power, at least it used to and it's set up to, to derive a lot of its power from its military. The Department of Defense is just an absurdly large apparatus. I think the other thing that's difficult for the public sometimes to remember is all of the kinds of things that fit within the defense umbrella. There's the obvious stuff like waging war or deploying troops, but the Defense Department also oversees an enormous health care system for active duty troops. They oversee daycares, they oversee schools, there's enormous media apparatus, and then the other huge part of it that's often forgotten is it's an enormous business in a way. The amount of money it's managing and specifically the amount of weapons it's buying and the price tags that go with that. So it's also a huge sort of business enterprise as well. And super important to that business enterprise are the people who make the business of war happen, from defense contractors to weapons manufacturers. Before World War II, there wasn't some huge defense industry. Normal civilian companies like General Motors built military arms during wartime, then just went back to making normal stuff. But after the war, there grew an armaments industry, a business that only makes money when nations are at or preparing for war. And it's worked out quite well for them. The industry made a record-setting $760 billion in 2018. And a lot of that comes from the U.S. Department of Defense. Here's Esper again in an interview with the CEO of Goldman Sachs. An important charge, not an easy charge, but glad glad to hear that. It's only a $738 billion budget. It's, it's, it's a big budget. It's different than our, our small little budget here at Goldman Sachs. Um, I'll swap paychecks with you, though. <laughs> That's right. $738 billion. That's the 2020 defense budget. Eisenhower totally called that, too. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. So who is handing all this money over to this industry? It's probably Republicans, right? Being beholden to the defense industry is actually quite bipartisan. You would think that it's kind of a Republican thing versus a Democratic thing. But across the board, whether you're a Republican or a Democratic senator, you're taking enormous amounts of money from the defense industry. And they, I mean, the defense industry is smart about it. They spread their money out. I mean, they buy up politicians. It wouldn't make sense for them to just buy Republicans. Even someone like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who by all appearances is anti-war and anti-lobbyist, has supported bills that help the defense contractors with facilities in her state, Massachusetts. Not even Senator Bernie Sanders' hands are clean. He recently supported $406 billion in spending on the F-35 stealth fighter, which was like not even a good stealth fighter. And those are two of our most progressive politicians. I spoke to Jack Detch. He's a Pentagon correspondent for Al Monitor, a news outlet covering the Middle East. I asked him about what part Congress plays in all of this. Congress, of course, holds the purse strings. Congress has a tremendous amount of influence. And you're dealing with lawmakers, of course, that all sort of get a piece of this programming. When you look at the F-35, for instance, the supply chain is split off so many different congressional districts, so many different political constituencies, that's certainly intentional because a lot of people want to have a piece of this aircraft, want to have the political clout that comes with it. So a lot of it is really dealing with Congress, making sure those relationships are tight, 
and for the lawmakers, certainly having influence and having some skin in the game when it comes to DOD. Ensuring every state is beholden to the defense industry is all part of the plan. When an arms manufacturer wants to build a new piece of military equipment, they'll specifically split up the states where every piece of that equipment is built. And it's more than just keeping constituents happy and employed in the manufacturer of this equipment. It also involves lobbyists and political donations. Throughout his career as the lead lobbyist of Raytheon, America's third biggest arms company, Mark Esper oversaw Raytheon's highest ever years of federal lobbying spending, focusing on bills tied to defense spending authorization. Spending Esper hoped would go towards Raytheon. Aaron Mehta, the deputy editor and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News, outlined how the defense industry, Congress, and what we've come to take for granted as everyday American life are inextricably intertwined. The role of Congress in the military-industrial complex can't be overlooked. This is a system that Congress has enabled, strengthened in some cases, and in some cases not done the oversight that they probably should have. The military-industrial complex is real and alive, but it's also kind of something that the U.S., the way it's ended up, can't live without. The military industry does provide a lot of jobs. We've heard President Trump talk about this, that he wants to sell more weapons abroad because it creates more job opportunities here in the United States. That's why members of Congress will defend military programs, even if the military wants to kill a program because of expenses. You know, there's a famous case of a tank that the Army decided it didn't want years ago. Keeps trying to retire it. Congress keeps saying, no, you have to keep buying it. Why? Because it's built in Ohio, and there's a number of congressmen who were powerful at the time who said, nope, you're going to keep buying this thing no matter what. The Army is sending them straight to the depot in the desert. They're never going to be used, but it's just straight from product to the desert. Why? Because there's jobs involved and there's money involved. It isn't even just the U.S. buying this stuff. There are controls in place for who our defense industry can sell to, but here's Jack Detch. Where U.S. technology ends up, I think, is something that gets covered but is not fully covered. One of the first things that people found in Tahrir Square during the 2011 Arab Spring protests were gas canisters with American labels on them. When you look at the bombs that are dropping in Yemen and you look at the labels and the indicators on those, those are American weapons. And you may be for, you may be against that, but I think as a journalist and as someone who supports transparency and public information, you want to see as much coverage of that as you can. And that's something that, you know, even young people who just have a laptop and have Twitter can get involved in, can get engaged in. And, you know, that's what I'd like to see more of on a citizen level and on a professional level. We'll talk more about the importance of paying attention and transparency when it comes to military spending in a bit. But first, there's something to point out about all three of these experts. They aren't armchair generals or like peaceniks criticizing the defense industry. They're deep within this world. And because of that, they have a unique view into what this world is like. And I was super curious about the actual, literal, physical space of the Pentagon. So the Pentagon is a vast sort of place and a bit of a daunting place. Before I stepped foot in it, I had an idea about what it was like from the movies, I guess, mm -hmm. that it would might be kind of glamorous and cloak and daggery. Mm -hmm. And it really is a mix. I found it kind of felt like a hospital meets a high school meets a lot of... Um, big deadbolt doors. <laughs> okay. If you've ever been in a big mall with fluorescent lights and all white walls, just forever, 
than you've essentially been in the Pentagon. It's not the world's prettiest building inside. It's also, in, in many ways, it is the world's largest office building, I believe, just based on square footage and the people who are in there. It's basically a little mini city that empties out every night. It's kind of this weird mix of a mall. I mean, it used to be before 9-11, you'd go all the way in mm-hmm. almost and shop in the different shopping centers. There's a Popeye's, there's a Taco Bell, there's so much different stuff. It really shows the huge connection between the American economy and its military. Even Taco Bell is in on it. Unlike the cheesy gordita crunches the Pentagon Taco Bell might be cooking up, it costs a lot more than three fifty nine. As Asper joked earlier, the budget is $738 billion this year. That's a lot of money. It's an amount of money I can't begin to comprehend. People look at Medicare for All, free college plans, and ask, how do we pay for it? Yet we have a military budget creeping towards a trillion dollars. Why is it so expensive? And where is all that money going? Well, I mean, first, it's acquiring different weapon systems. So it's very expensive to acquire, modernize, and maintain a nuclear arsenal, a fleet of fighter jets, a set of tanks. I mean, these are extremely expensive programs. They're very difficult to deliver. They often run over cost and over time, which costs even more money. So you're just talking about a really complicated portfolio that you're running just in the first place. And again, a very ambitious military posture from the United States over the years to be involved in as many countries as we are, both militarily and in terms of our footprint. That costs a ton of money. And now, Secretary Mark Esper, who came up working to get the government to spend as much money as possible on Raytheon and the aerospace industry, is in charge of that ton of money. That will allow us to begin the shift of over $30 billion over five years to really modernize the force, to move away from the legacy of the last three or four decades into the future in terms of building semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicles, robotics, incorporating artificial intelligence. All right. Apologies, I don't have any cool robots for you to buy, but spend money on this instead. The Secretary of Defense leads the largest workforce in the world and controls that massive $738 billion budget I keep mentioning. But just how powerful is this guy in today's incredibly unconventional White House? But the Secretary of Defense is pretty powerful. In the U.S., the Secretary of Defense is probably the most powerful secretary. Treasury obviously will have an impact. State has an impact. But frankly, state often takes a backseat to defense. If you look at the sheer budget, defense has a lot of the money. And this is a country which is very focused on defense. You know, the public supports the military. You always hear politicians talking about we need to defend the country, make sure we have the strongest military possible. The most poisonous thing you can do if you're a politician is to say, I don't know if we need to support the military to the tune of, X billions of dollars, maybe it could be slightly less. Uh, So the Secretary of Defense has a lot of power. It has a lot of political clout, too, because obviously the Defense Department has bases and influence across every state, because the defense industry has jobs in every state. So they kind of know every member of Congress. Everyone has a little bit of information and wants to be in on Defense Department. And today, our Secretary of Defense is a man named Mark Esper. Mark Esper is a longtime creature of Washington, as far as I understand it. He has a lot of experience on Capitol Hill. As a staffer, he worked for Senator Chuck Hagel, who went on to become the defense secretary under President Barack Obama. He also worked, I believe, for the presidential campaign of Fred Thompson, who was a sort of long-term Republican politician. So he's been on the Hill a lot. 
After working on Capitol Hill, he worked both at the Heritage Foundation, which is like a big conservative think tank in Washington. And then he has spent a lot of time lobbying on behalf of the defense industry, both at Raytheon, where he was Raytheon's top lobbyist, and at the Aerospace Industries Association, which is essentially the lobby for the defense industry. Right. And so between all that, like I very much view him as a creature of Washington. Also, he's a graduate of West Point in this kind of famous class of 1986, which is being sort of pulled on heavily by the Trump administration. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo graduated from that class. Some of his close advisors at the State Department also graduated from that class. And Mark Espers graduated from this 1986 class of West Point. Esper also served in the Army when he was younger and I believe served in the first Gulf War. And so he has both military experience, he has Capitol Hill experience, he has industry experience. So he's kind of got checks a lot of Washington boxes. Esper goes through the revolving door over and over again. That's what it's called when people go from the public sector to lobbying and back again, gaining contacts and vested interests in both areas. His first lobbying job was working for the industry at large, for the Aerospace Industries Association, representing anything that flies, including the stuff that blows up or drops stuff that blows up. Later, Esper worked at Raytheon as vice president of government relations, which is really vice president of making sure the government buys as much stuff from them as possible. Raytheon is a hugely important part of the military-industrial complex conversation. Raytheon is one of the biggest defense contractors in the world. It's currently the fourth largest in the way that we rank them. We do an annual ranking each year. It came in four for the last ranking. That's going to jump probably to two or three because they just bought another giant company earlier this year. Raytheon makes a overwhelming amount of the missiles and munitions that the U.S. military and allied militaries abroad use. Something like 99% of the missiles produced in the United States either come from Raytheon or Lockheed, and Raytheon is the larger portion of that. We're talking a, a company with overall revenues of north of $27 billion in 2019. It's a big player. You can't talk about the defense industry without talking about Raytheon. And since Esper worked for them for so long, he has vested interest in their success. Yes, he did divest all stock he owned in the company, but he still does stand to benefit from a successful Raytheon. Esper has a bunch of deferred income from Raytheon. I think it's like a million dollars maybe mm -hmm. that they still owe him, like he'll be paid out. And so the idea that he would do anything to sort of cross his old employer that still owes him a million dollars, I mean, it doesn't take much to understand that that's a perception right. of a conflict of interest. Now, the Trump administration does not care about, obviously, conflicts of interest. I mean, from Trump himself and his hotels and Mar-a-Lago and... Jared and Ivanka, I mean, the idea that they would hold Esper to some different standard is silly. When his time as Secretary of Defense is over, Esper could just go right back to working for the industry. Here is Senator Warren grilling him during his confirmation hearing. If confirmed, will you commit not to work for or get paid by any defense contractor for at least four years after your government service? No, Senator, I will not. Didn't Trump promise to drain the swamp? Was the drain just directly into the White House? But this isn't just a Trump thing. Like, a lot of the stuff we talk about on this show, it's part of a systemic problem that Trump just does in a more brazen way. There's, again, a long history of the members of the defense industry coming into administrations and, and working in the industry. Probably the clearest example here is actually from President Obama when he first came in. 
his deputy secretary of defense nominee, who was sworn in right after the inauguration, was Bill Lynn. Bill Lynn was senior vice president of government operations and strategy at Raytheon. So there is some precedent for this. This isn't a party thing. It's a power thing. Power is bipartisan. Money is bipartisan. The fact that it's a bipartisan issue plays directly into Esper taking the role. When Trump's first Secretary of Defense, James Mad Dog Mattis, stepped down, he wrote in his resignation letter, you have the right to have a Secretary of Defense whose views are better aligned with yours. First, President Trump puts up Patrick Shanahan, once Vice President of Boeing Missile Defense Systems, another defense industry guy. But his confirmation is muddled by accusations that he'd, in his short time in the acting role, already used his power to help Boeing. But that doesn't sink him. An old domestic violence case involving Shanahan comes out, and his nomination is totally scuttled. Enter Esper. Then the Secretary of the Army, he's Trump's nominee. And here comes the bipartisanship. 90 out of 100 senators voted to confirm Esper. 90. And of the eight who voted nay, five were running for president, perhaps caring about how it would look in a general election if they voted to confirm Trump's picks. One of the senators to vote against Esper was Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren made a big stink about his background with Raytheon and essentially was one of the few people who voted against him, gave a very impassioned speech about why he should not be allowed to be Secretary of Defense because he was not going to recuse himself from certain Raytheon products. You know, this is where the reality of the defense industry comes into play. Raytheon makes a number of systems that nobody else makes, including missile defense systems. So can Esper recuse himself from discussions about these missile defense systems? Well, it's tough because if a partner nation comes in and says, we're interested in getting this system, we feel we need this particular weapon system to defend our country, let's talk about it. It's very hard for the Secretary of Defense to get up and say, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. You have to talk to my deputy and walk out of the room. So a decision was made that there's certain systems he is allowed to talk about because they're considered national assets, essentially tools of national policy. And missile defense is very much a tool of national policy and diplomacy as much as it is a military asset. Despite Warren's criticism, Esper refused to recuse himself from decisions regarding Raytheon. On the other hand, Secretary Esper does have a lot of real legitimate experience in the armed forces. He went to West Point. He graduated in the same class as Secretary Mike Pompeo, as we mentioned earlier. And his education is vital to understanding how he runs our military. As a person who started off as an infantry guy who won a combat action badge and, and won a bronze star in the Gulf War and then migrated sort of to a missile defense portfolio. So when you look at the way that the Defense Department is thinking about how to take on China or Russia in a future war, they're really thinking about it with a missile focus in mind, getting troops forward into China, into Asia, under the cover of missiles and beating back sort of the Chinese air defenses. And that's kind of really wired into Esper's brain and his thinking. And it's one of those things that when you think about, as we again are gearing up for what's being called around Washington, the great power competition, China and Russia, and you start hearing these phrases that are very similar to old Cold War phraseology, and you start to see certain, you know, strategies and logistical thoughts going out there about big force-on-force -force war, which is, again, very Cold War. You have to say, okay, is there a through line here to the education a lot of these guys got back there in the military academy from 82 to 86? That's what they were being taught. So it's a very interesting thing. You can kind of draw some conclusions based on the education in the background. When you're a listener or a reader unpacking somebody's background from the military or a top a defense official, 
think about where these people came from. Think about the values in the institutions. When somebody's an army guy, are they an artillery guy? Are they an infantry guy? What conflicts were they involved in? Because that's going to inform how they approach every single problem. It's kind of funny. You sort of, of course, become who you know. And I think a lot of people in the military, in government, travel in the same circles, know the same people, and, of course, become sort of who they know, become that network. And I think we've definitely seen that with Mark Esper, certainly a guy who has those Army values instilled in him, thinks a lot about sort of this Cold War footing against Russia and China, of course, has said we're not in a Cold War with China, but we sort of see a a much more conventional footing towards Russia, towards China, even towards Iran with Secretary Esper than we might under a different defense secretary. China has spent basically the last 20 years while the Pentagon was focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, looking at what the U.S. had and saying, okay, they're investing in stuff to deal with fighting terrorists and insurgents. We can invest while they're not looking in stuff that would be used to kill carriers and to keep their airplanes out of our airspace. And a couple of years ago, you started to hear people in the Pentagon going, hey, are you guys tracking what China's doing? They're investing in weird ways. And then about two or three years ago, around the time of the Trump administration coming in, you started to suddenly see a real shift inside the building. And it was one that was driven loudly by Secretary Mattis at the time, saying China is the future competitor. Russia, they're always going to be a potential competitor. They're always a threat to NATO. But we basically know what they have and how to deal with them in Europe. It's China that we have to really reorient ourselves towards. China inside the Beltway really has become the focus in almost a startlingly fast fashion. I mean, it was not like this three years ago. And now you can't go to any think tank event without somebody bringing up China as the biggest concern. Hold on. Are we going to war with China? It's mostly about preparedness. I mean, certainly that's something that, you know, nobody can rule out in the future. But, you know, for DOD, for the Pentagon, for the way that the secretary looks at it, it's really making sure you are prepared. So in case worst comes to worst, you have that channel and you have the ability to deter a potential conflict. I think that people don't understand the system of operation inside the Pentagon and and the system that drives American decision making on conflict. You know, I think sometimes people assume there is a shadowy cabal of generals sitting in the Pentagon who get together for lunch and decide, you know, this is the country we're going to invade next. And this is the company that we're going to buy all the stuff from and make a lot of money off of. And then they cackle and clink their scotch. Uh, The process is slow. Even if the Pentagon wanted to have some sort of shadowy conspiracy, it takes a long time. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot of PowerPoint slides that get produced. And ultimately, this is a process-driven building. And there's a lot of people who the process has to run through. Nothing happens fast in the Pentagon. And I think people need to understand that when a decision is made, it's usually been quite vetted. Whether the vetting is correct or not, whether it's correct assumptions are made, it's a separate issue. But it's generally been anything that happens in the Pentagon, there's at least two or three guys sitting in a windowless room in the basement who have cranked out 100 pages of papers and 5,000 PowerPoints about it. I think under Trump, the business of the job of the defense secretary is to mitigate disaster and Mm -hmm. damage because of President Trump. I think whether it's going to war with North Korea, which we've been on the cusp of under this administration, whether it's going to war with Iran, which we've been on the cusp of with this administration, those are the really big things they're trying to mitigate and keep from happening and keep the president from doing. And then there's sort of the smaller issues that are still pretty enormous, like troops at the border, banning transgender troops, 
pulling U.S. troops out of Syria and abandoning our Kurdish allies, I think that even actually falls into this like smaller category. But their job is different than past secretaries because so much of it is just making sure the president doesn't do too much damage. Making sure Trump doesn't do too much damage. Well, as we're failed. After the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, war with Iran appears to be something that might happen. Iraq, where the assassination occurred, has decided it wants U.S. forces out of the country. Stopping a president from doing the really bad stuff is not the normal job of the Secretary of Defense. But it is Esper's job. I think the idea is to keep the president from doing the really bad stuff. And the really bad stuff is, again, like war with North Korea and war with Iran and maybe leaving NATO. You know, like really frightening stuff. I think the biggest thing is Yemen, just point blank one word. Not only is it just the relationship that's been well covered, I think, between the U.S. and the Saudis, but it's just the humanitarian catastrophe that Yemen's really turned into. That's something that's going to continue to affect the region. And when you look at the continuing tension between the U.S. and Iran that has really animated U.S. Middle East policy, that's going to be a soft spot that Iran will be able to continue to exploit. After Trump announced that that he had a phone call with the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, and that the U.S. wouldn't stop Turkey from basically invading Syria. That essentially green-lighted a Turkish invasion of Syria. And then in the days and weeks that followed, Esper was sort of the chief spokesperson trying to explain that that wasn't what it appeared to be, that that was not the U.S. greenlighting this invasion, when in fact that's exactly what it was. Like everybody could see that's what it was. And so I think he lost an enormous amount of credibility in that moment. But you could also see how hard he was trying to do like damage mitigation on the one hand. I think he was doing like an enormous amount of calling our allies and reassuring and trying to do as much work behind the scenes, while at the same time sort of approving this horrible decision Trump made publicly and kind of trying to put, like, a rosy face on it. In the Trump administration, damage control is not an easy job. Trump might consider the advice of Tucker Carlson just as strongly as that of Esper. But Esper is the one who has to clean up the mess. And Esper kind of got involved in another mess with the Ukraine scandal and resulting impeachment. It inherently involves the Defense Department. The whole thing was about threats to withhold military aid. He's keeping his head down on the Ukraine situation, which is particularly touchy because it's actually interesting. If you look at the timeline, I believe there's about two hours between when he, Trump had the call with the Ukrainian president that set off this whole situation and when he traveled to the Pentagon to swear Esper in as Secretary of Defense. And obviously the Pentagon is firmly in the middle of the question of whether these arms were held up for political reasons or not. So, yes, President Trump makes this now historic call where he allegedly asks a foreign country to create bad PR for his political rival or also withhold hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid. That is, according to the impeachment charges, a massive abuse of presidential power. After that phone call, he immediately goes to a big pomp and circumstance ceremony to welcome Mark Esper. It made me wonder something, so I asked Kate Brannon. I think when he was being confirmed, he said he wanted to keep the long-standing tradition of keeping the Department of Defense apolitical. Has he been successful in that? Uh, 
No, I don't think so. I just think that the force of Trump is so strong. Trump is intent on politicizing the military. He has been from day one. They're his generals. He treats visits to bases like rallies. Trump is politicizing the military in a very dangerous way, and there's not that much that Mark Esper can do or has done about it. You'll see a lot of Trump saying things like, my military, my generals. You'll see members of the military wearing pro-Trump paraphernalia in the crowd, cheering when he says stuff about Democrats. That's a big thing was whenever a president speaks to military members, it's always supposed to be apolitical in the sense of you can talk about your priorities or your strategy or beliefs, but you shouldn't say things like the other party are crooks. You do see this president making those statements in front of the military. and You see members of the military applauding. That's very much not what the relationship is supposed to look like. And certainly, again, among the military civilian folks who do this kind of for a living in D.C. Circuit, there's a lot of concern about that. So where are we now? There's an unbeatable military-industrial complex, a system where one of the biggest industries in America is fueled by forever war, supported by both political parties. There's a commander-in-chief who is regarded by experts as having a total lack of understanding of how a military should operate. So how much does it come down to the Secretary of Defense? It's important just to remember, ultimately, the president is the commander-in-chief, and the Secretary of Defense is a political figure that he has selected to do his bidding in the Pentagon. Let's roll back to President Eisenhower. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. An alert and knowledgeable citizenry. Here's Jack Detch again. I think the thing to always watch and think about when you're looking at the Department of Defense is how the budget works. I mean, the budget is the brainchild of the department. It's sort of the way the department operates. And so if you're looking for a blueprint of the way the next war is going to go or who holds the political cards in the House, you got to look at the budget and see what the department's investing in, what people are thinking about, and how these conflicts are going to play out in the future. Every day the Pentagon announces at 5 o'clock they put out their major contracts for the day, and so the public has access to that in a very basic level. Mm -hmm. I think what I learned when I was covering it was outside of the defense industry and outside of the trades, there's very little interest in it, and there are very few people paying attention to it. And it always baffled me, you know, when there'd be fights on the Hill about NPR funding or public television funding, it would get so much media attention, and it would be like, a couple million dollars. I don't know the exact amount. Meanwhile, at the Pentagon, like billions of dollars are being spent with very little public interest or oversight. There's a lot that goes into those contracts getting awarded, getting selected, things like that. And the only real transparency that is there comes from the fairly small group of trade reporters who cover this stuff kind of day in and day out. You know, there's probably about 20 or 30 people in the D.C. area who do this, kind of on the defense trade side, covering a budget that looks like it's going to be about $730 billion next year. We've seen big questions in Congress about whether the budget needs to be the size of it, if the strategy is right, how long are we going to be in Syria, questions from the president about being in Syria, being in Afghanistan. These are issues that the Pentagon, if it wants to maintain kind of the stability of its operations, and people in the Pentagon, 
don't want to leave Korea. They see that as a bad idea. They don't want to leave Europe. They see that as a bad idea. They're largely in favor of NATO. If the Pentagon wants to defend these things, and by the way, get a $738 billion budget, they need to be able to explain to the American public why that is. You know, for years and years and years, there has been a strong pro-defense block on the Hill. That's chipping away, both from the left and from the right. President Trump has provided the biggest defense budget in history with 750 with the request this year. But there are still members of the party who say, why are we spending this? You're seeing the president himself say, why are we in these places? I don't want to be sending American troops abroad. Why are we doing this? Now it's 2020 and President Trump just ordered a drone strike and Franz Ferdinand the hell out of an Iranian general. A strike that Esper, as defense secretary, was integral in carrying out. A former defense official told Foreign Policy magazine, the DOD was not in agreement that killing the second most popular person in Iran at an international airport in Iraq was a good idea. Here's Aaron Mehta. I think the biggest thing is remembering that members of the military, whether they are at the lowest level or at the highest level, now it's actually particularly at the highest level, if you're three stars or four stars, are ultimately still people. And that means they're not infallible. It means they can make mistakes, whether those are moral mistakes or whether those are strategic mistakes or tactical mistakes, mistakes about what to buy, mistakes with things they say. Again, these are just people. They are well-educated. They're well-informed. They have some of the best training in terms of military knowledge that anyone in the world has ever had. But that doesn't mean they're infallible. And it certainly doesn't mean they shouldn't be questioned uh, and shouldn't be pushed on various issues. Sometimes, you know, we're covering the Pentagon and we try to question something and the pushback we get is, well, you guys don't understand. You have to just trust us. During his confirmation hearing, Esper said this when asked if the president has the authority to attack Iran. I agree. We do not want war with Iran. We are not seeking war with Iran. We need to get back on the diplomatic channel. We still don't know what the results of the killing of Soleimani will be. The world is perhaps heading towards a massive surge in armed conflict. But there is something... I can confirm. Raytheon stock went up 6% since the assassination. It's at an all-time high. And that's the military-industrial complex. As the Iran story develops, we'll need to pay more attention to one of the United States' most important allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, an extremely religious monarchy whose crown prince has been accused of ordering the killing of a Washington Post journalist. That crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, next week on Who Is. If you like our show, please let us know in the reviews, subscribe, and tell your friends. And as the primaries approach, don't forget to check out the first half of the season for the stories of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden. A sincere thank you to our experts, Kate Brannon of Just Security, Aaron Mehta of Defense News, and Jack Detch of Al Monitor. Special thanks to Jen Judson of Defense News. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Additional research and writing from PJ Evans. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Margot Wall. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And Now This... Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rodrino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. <laughs>